Hello, what next for agriculture now the Brexit election is over? We speak to the two men who know more than most what's likely to happen next. There's no way that we're going to dilute standards in order to do a trade deal with the US or anyone else. But we also want to unlock the trade deals around the world, which will give opportunities to our farmers as well. Also, Colin Jackson will update us on the latest on potatoes. And then later, we celebrate a milestone for Waldmarsh. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. So the result is in and we have our next government and a majority for Boris Johnson. Now, eyes turn to the end of January and, to quote the Prime Minister, getting Brexit done. So what then? What are the trade deals that will need to be forged? In a moment, we'll hear from two senior members of Boris Johnson's government who've been heavily involved in Brexit to date. Stephen Barclay was Brexit secretary going into the election, while Michael Gove worked on no-deal planning earlier in the year. First, this was Andrew Clark, the NFU's Director of Policy, speaking on last week's programme. One of the implications of Brexit, we're going to do do new trade deals with other countries, uh, not just the European Union. And those other countries are often very big food exporters, like the States, like South America, uh, like New Zealand and Australia. Now, they all produce food to different standards, um, and some of those standards are not as good as the standards we have in the UK. That's Andrew Clark at the NFU. Now, during the election campaign, you might remember, Jeremy Corbyn revealed a document showing talks between the UK and the US. Now, there was much debate as to whether that was genuine or not, and the coverage at the time focused largely on the NHS. But that document also showed, if true, that food standards are very much up for grabs as far as the US is concerned anyway. As I mentioned, Steve Barclay was the Brexit secretary going into the election. Well, whilst being Brexit secretary, I'm also an MP or have been an MP over the last nine years for a big farming area in North East Cambridgeshire. Uh, and one of the key frustrations farmers often talk to me about are things like the three crop rule, a lot of the regulation uh, that comes through from Europe. And we can design an approach through our agriculture bill that is bespoke to the needs of our farmers in the UK, rather than being based on what the French farmers or others need. So we can tailor our approach much more closely to the agricultural needs here in Lincolnshire and across the fence as a whole. That's good for farmers here, it's good for farmers across the UK. But it's clear America will want to to lower food standards, at least get their food in, and that is cheaper food that's coming from America that will hit the farmers here, won't it? No, we've always been clear as a government we believe in good food standards, high food standards, uh, and our manifesto makes that clear. It has specifically a commitment to high standards. So that's what we want as a government, it's what uh, voters want, and it's what farmers themselves want to do. And it's the same on welfare standards. The UK has always had extremely high welfare standards. Uh, That's an opportunity for us, but we also want to unlock the trade deals around the world, which will give opportunities to our farmers as well. Steve Barkley there, hoping for new opportunities for our farmers. What of Michael Gove? He, of course, a former DEFRA secretary, so should know the Brexit issues facing agriculture only too well. All the time that I was Environment Secretary, I made it absolutely clear, and the Prime Minister has reinforced this, there's no way that we're going to dilute standards in order to do a trade deal with the US or anyone else. Look, England's farmers, the UK's farmers, are the best in the world. And one of the reasons their reputation stands so high is because of our high environmental and high animal welfare standards. And we would 
only be harming that reputation if we were to let in substandard food from the US or anywhere else. So, of course, we want to do a trade deal, and there's plenty of potential to do what, um, a, a good deal, but no way will we undermine the position of UK agriculture. It's one of the strongest selling points of our economy. Michael Gove there. So, what next? What does uh, Kath Crowther at the CLA make of Friday's result? I think that we welcome the greater degree of political certainty that a majority government provides. The recent confusion and constant delays has really hindered rural businesses. What we really need now, though, is to ensure that um, we negotiate trade agreements, that we don't compromise on standards, and that the agriculture bill is um, brought through as quickly as possible. It does seem the case from an American point of view, certainly, that they would want to lower our food standards as, as part of any trade deal. I know, you know, uh, Steve Barkley, Michael Gove is saying we won't allow that to happen. But if there's going to be a, a, that, that negotiation, that deal with America, that definitely is on the table, isn't it? It's something that we are very much going to be pushing with all of the new MPs. We must ensure that farmers are not undercut by cheaper, lower standard foods. That's totally unacceptable and the government should be our biggest champions. So it's something we will be focusing on quite a lot over the next few months and potentially longer. And I imagine the uh, organisations such as yourselves, the CLA, will be hoping to meet with the Prime Minister, uh, probably get Christmas out of the way, but in, in the new year to, to put those points across and certainly to whoever may be the, uh, the DEFRA secretary. Absolutely. Um, it's really important that we also focus on the, the positives. Um, we recently launched our Rural Powerhouse campaign, which is based on the idea that the rural economy has incredible potential to create jobs, grow businesses and build a successful rural economy. But we need the policy platforms in order for that to happen. Um, Rural areas are often forgotten about when policy is created. I did feel during, and we said it on the the farming programme, during the campaign itself, you know, food and farming almost ignored by politicians, but they can't afford to ignore us, can they? No, definitely not. Um, The Conservative manifesto was... Um, quite vague. Um, we need a lot more detail now on the areas that they did talk about. Um, and we need to have a focus on farming, um, food production, but also the agriculture bill to ensure that we've got the certainty of where agricultural policy is going. And so rural businesses can start to make decisions. All right. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Kath Crowther there at the CLA. Now, uh, Nick von Westenholz, Director of EU Exit and International Trade for the NFU, uh, tweeted on Friday that for farmers, it's now nailed on. We're leaving the EU at the end of January and then we embark on our first major trade negotiation in decades with the EU and almost certainly concurrent talks with the USA and others. He says, strap in, 2020 may make 2016 to 19 look like a walk in the park. Now, what does Sean Sparling make of the election results, our agronomist? Hello, Sean. Yes, good morning, Sean. Well, I think my overriding emotion this morning is one of relief, uh, really, that we've got some semblance of normality back into British politics. We've got a majority government which will be able to make decisions. And everything in life is down to decisions. You don't get sacked for making a mistake. You get sacked for not making decisions. And there are only two decisions you can make. You can make the best decision, which is the right one, 
and you can make the next best, which is the wrong one. So there's only best or next best, but you have to make one of those decisions. We have to have that level of decisiveness in politics and now we've got it back we've become a joke all around the world with what's gone on in the last three and a half years in parliament with people voting things down and won't back it and then denying that they voted it down and blaming the government for it not getting through when all along it was them who voted i'm absolutely sick of it and it's just good for me to be back to some sort of normality now whether you voted remain or leave is an irrelevance i know people are saying this this election was a referendum it doesn't matter whether you voted leave or remain, because we voted to leave. I was remain. You've got to suck it up. The democratic process said people wanted to leave. In when we joined the EU, it was the same margin. 52% voted to join. The same numbers repeated over history. So we have to leave. Had we gone back into the EU with another referendum or a, a liberal government who scrapped it altogether, the, the referendum... We would have been a laughing stock. We would have had no credibility whatsoever within Europe. So to me, the best thing to do is to leave. Now, the thing that concerns me most is the fact that none of the parties were talking about agriculture as an important part of our future. It is vital to our future. And we have to make sure on all my trips to Westminster, I shall be pushing that. I'm sure the NFU and other lobbying groups within agriculture will be pushing that. We have to ensure that the minister we get to represent UK agriculture understands the importance of farming. It's no good to say we're just going to strike trade deals. There's plenty of food out there in the world. We'll just bring it in. We produce the safest, most sustainable, most environmentally friendly food in the world. We are so well regulated in the UK that you can trust the food that comes off the field to be safe for you and your children and your parents to eat. That is not the case with what's coming in from the rest of the world because we don't know the provenance of that. That's why British agriculture is so important. The environment was mentioned a lot in the election. The environment is farming. When people go out and they say, oh, we've been out into the countryside, what a beautiful environment. You're in the middle of farmland. It's what we do. We are managing that environment. And everything we do is geared to protect the environment. We get events like the flooding we've just had, which the denitrification, which is a natural bacterial process, will have released all that nitrous oxide into the atmosphere, 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide to our atmosphere. So farming will be the thing which fixes and sequesters that carbon dioxide back into the land through livestock farming, through the use of glyphosate, so we can minimise our carbon footprint by reducing the amount of uh, machinery we use and the amount of cultivations we do that's what glyphosate's helping us do we need to make sure the public understand that there's been a lot of misinformation out there i think now is the time to turn that round and get the story back out that farming is good you have to support it going forward so for me a huge sense of relief all right that's your views on politics what about the week in agronomy sean um yes well the agronomy report as you know is going to be fairly short and fairly sweet so let's start with oilseed rape. The general synopsis, by the way, is that people are talking about putting the antifreeze in the sprayer and putting it away because it's very, very wet out there. We've had more rain again this week, another half an inch of rain this week, which has topped things up. And when you look out in the fields, you can see the water standing in those fields because the ditches are pretty much flowing above the level of the land drains and the water can't get away. We've got full saturation point. We're still seeing denitrification out there in the field. We're not seeing it, but we know it must be going on because we've got these anaerobic conditions in the soils. So there's not much we can do at the moment. We can't travel. Do I think it's worth going out and making a mess in cereals at the moment? Absolutely not. No, I don't. There are people, I'm one of them, talking about this 170 degree T-sum for calculating that when you get to 170 degrees, you spray for aphids. 
you only spray for aphids if you can find aphids. It's not a miracle. It's not something which you can just work on day degrees and all of a sudden that's the day you need to spray aphids or else you're wrong. If there are no aphids in the field, there's no point spraying and I cannot find aphids for the life of me. I think all the wind and the wet, the aphids have given it up as a bad job as well and they've moved away. And to hearten you, last autumn we had quite a lot of wet weather towards the end of November and certainly through December which stopped us putting late insecticides on if we felt the need was there. We didn't get a particularly harsh winter. You need minus sevens, minus eights in order to kill the aphid population or at least knock them back enough so they don't cause a problem. We didn't get a, a strong winter last year but we didn't see an awful lot of BYDV, which makes you question whether there's an awful lot of BYDV inoculum within the aphid population anyway. But for me, unless you can find aphids, there's no justification for spraying them. There really isn't. It's the same with rape winter stem weevil in all seed rapes. You can't find them. Why would you put an insecticide in? I have been finding them on some farms, up on the heath around the Cranwell, Wellingore area, I've found some. Um, but I'm not finding them everywhere. So do keep your eyes open and do only put an insecticide in with something like propizomide, curb on all-seed rape, should you find them. Now, as far as all-seed rape goes, if you are spraying propizomide on its own, you can go out on a frost. If it's minus two, minus three, as long as you can get the spray out of the sprayer, you can spray that on the crop in frosty conditions and onto a rime leaf because you're aiming at the floor, that's what it's for. But it gets slightly more complicated if you're putting a fungicide or an insecticide or trace element in to correct any deficiencies in the field because if that is the case, you cannot put it onto a rime-covered leaf. You can go when there are frosts about, but you must go on a dry-ish or drying leaf so that the fungicide and the insecticide don't just wash off and drop on the floor. If you can walk into a field and you can see your trail when you've come out, far too wet to be considering putting a fungicide or an insecticide on that crop. So judge each crop on its merits. You do have until the end of January, of course, to put propizomide on. Now, as far as cereals go with herbicides, you've got until the end of December, the 31st of December of the year of drilling to apply uh, crystal and ice. Check with your advisor, check with your agronomist and make sure you are still legal um, because I'm pretty sure that the RPA inspectors won't accept a date of the 75th of December when it comes to an application of crystal. Make sure you're safe. Just watch the seed beds as well and go back to basics with these things. The good thing is we've had, as I've said before, a fantastic kill of black grass out there in the field. So what we now need going forward and the thing I've asked Father Christmas for is a little bit of dry weather. So let's see what the next seven days bring, Sean. Hopefully we'll be chipper looking at the job in a quite, you know, a bit of a sort of rose-tinted, alcohol-infused glow of Christmas and think, well, you know what? Things aren't as bad as they could have been. We'll see. Thank you, Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. Right, let's get an update on potatoes now, shall we? Colin Jackson is ready for us at PJP. How are things, Colin? Yeah, morning, Sean. Um, <laughs> it's been a stressful uh, few weeks, I must have been in the spud game with the, um, obviously, you know, mainly the weather conditions, really. Um, people are still fighting to get some spuds out of the ground, Um Yet to be seen really what percentage of the crop is left in the ground, but there is definitely, you know, anywhere between, you know, 10 and 20%, I think, of the crop is still left in the ground around the area or, or around the country. Um, so obviously it's now having quite a big effect on the trade. How does that compare to, to previous years? Um, we haven't seen crop left in the ground and overwintered for probably 
10 or 12 years, really. Um, so it's it's very unusual for it to happen like this. And bear in mind also that um, the advances that has, have happened in, in sort of machinery over that uh, period, you know, people now have got much better, you know, machinery and self-propelled harvesters around and, and this kind of thing. And uh, so it's it's just doesn't really happen these days. Um, hence the reason why it is quite a shock and it has made quite a bit of difference to the uh, to the values. And And how are values at the moment? Well, values had been sliding. You know, we were in an oversupply situation in the market. So values were sliding down, you know, as we spoke about previously, sort of down to the sort of £100 level and and, and below that, you know, in places as well. Um, And really, it's meant a a reaction in the region of about £100 a tonne back up again. Um, So, uh, you know, a lot of sort of ordinary whites that were getting down to £100 have suddenly bounced back up to £200 on the farm. Um, and, and packing material best quality, um, you know, much further north than that. So um, people who are looking to source, particularly for the Christmas rush, you know, they want the, the, the right quality product, um, having to get the checkbooks out and, uh, and pay sometimes north of £300 for, for the best quality gear. And of course, you know, that's having a knock-on effect to all of us buying potatoes, isn't it? Yes, yes, it will do. Um, Often we don't see it too much actually affecting into the supermarkets particularly because the supermarkets themselves often will be on contract prices. Um, So we don't necessarily see the the peaks and troughs that we see at the, uh, you know, at the farm gate end. But certainly um, potatoes from the the local greengrocer will be uh, more expensive than they were two or three months ago. And I mean, we're coming to the end of of this year. I guess you want to hope 2019 ends and 2020 starts on a more positive note, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, We haven't seen a lot of frost damage yet. Um, So if we do get a dry period, you know, the potatoes will still come out of the ground um sometimes and 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 even even if we do get you know continued wet you know it may well be february or march time but they will quite possibly still harvest what's left in the ground and uh, and often actually it comes out in pretty good condition so obviously that again may well affect the trade at that point i imagine the worst thing you want is now a harsh winter well that's right you know everything that's there you know it is relatively safe but if we do get a harsh winter um if we get sort of a period of a few days of of sub zero temperatures then um, you can uh, you can say goodbye to the crop that's left in the ground at that point okay well let's hope for a better 2020 colin <laughs> that's it Thanks for that honest as ever that's uh, Colin we'll chat again in the new year Colin Jackson there at PJP We'll have celebrations for Waldmarsh in a mo. First, our weekly catch-up on all things open field with Kit Dickinson. Well, on the wheat front this week, on Wednesday, the AHDB published their thinking on the current UK planting progress report. The interesting ones to look at are winter wheat and winter barley. By the end of November, it is estimated that just under 60% of the intended wheat area and just under 65% of the intended winter barley area have been drilled. With no dry period in the weather forecast for the near future, the question is how much more wheat will we be able to drill? As I've mentioned in the past few weeks, there are varieties that can be drilled up to the end of January and February. But putting these crops into the best seedbeds possible and giving them the best start is not going to be easy going forward. The USDA update failed to come up with any fresh news regarding the yields as there is little change at all on all key crops in terms of production but a slight drop in terms of stock estimates. Many traders will be now looking 
at January the 10th report, which may finally reduce the US maize tonnage somewhere near to where they expect it should be. The Liffey wheat price this week has been drifting slightly lower in front of the general election and uncertainty that it could bring to the market. We have seen another week of limited drilling in Lincolnshire due to more rain and poor drying conditions, and the chance of drilling any more wheat pre-Christmas is looking slim. Moving on to wall seed rate, spot OSR prices continue to hold around the 320 marker, moving forward with limited carry to 323 for May. A lack of sellers and buyers having cover going forward has meant little change in the last couple of weeks. All seed rape in the region is still suffering from the dreaded flea beetle or pigeon damage, which is always high at this time of year. I can't help wondering how much all seed rape will be taken out in the spring if there is a possibility of establishing another crop with a good end market. Barley, the UK barley is still cheap compared to the rest of the world and therefore export opportunities are still possible to China and Saudi Arabia. This year, the total barley estimate has been 8.6 million metric tonnes, which, as it stands, is a 1 million metric tonne surplus. How much will we actually have is the first question. How much are we feeding on farm, which won't materialise into the market, is the second. Will export opportunities continue post-Brexit? All these factors must be taken into consideration in a year like this. This has been the largest barley crop the UK has ever seen. Last year, from harvest to the end of October, the UK exported 168,000 tonnes of barley. This year, from harvest to the end of October, they have done 963,325. This puts into perspective just how much we have in the UK. So moving on to prices this week. Wheat, December 139 to 141. February 141 to 143. May 144 to 146. And November 20, new crop, 151 to 153. Milling premiums are currently 18 to 20 pounds. Oil seed rate for December 317 to 319. February 319 to 321. And May 321 to 322. There are limited prices going forward. Feed barley for December 120 to 122. February 124 to 126. May 127 to 129 and November new crop 126 to 128 and malting premiums are circa 8 to 10 pounds currently. Thank you Kit. Kit Dickinson there at Open Field. Right on to this week's farming positivity. My idea to uh, spread a bit of positive news here on the farming program and today let's celebrate the thousandth member to join Waldmarsh. John Bird became that member recently. We'll hear from him in a moment. First Stuart McKenzie Chief Executive of Waldmarsh. We're absolutely thrilled that we've got the thousandth member. We started in 1961 with 12 and uh, almost 60 years later we're now at a thousand. Marvellous. For those who don't know, tell us a bit about uh, Waldmarsh. Well, Waldmarsh is a buying cooperative. We buy inputs for farmers. Uh, so it's everything from fertiliser, chemical, fuel, electricity, you name it, and we can get it for a farmer. You say started, what, 12 members back in the, uh, in the 60s? Yes, 1961, and uh, there was a perception then that farmers needed to combine their efforts to be able to do better, and that still exists today every bit as much as it did then. Yeah, I was going to say, when they set it up all that time ago, they can't believe we're approaching the 60th anniversary now. Uh, No, and there are some who tell me that uh, they were original founder members, and of those original 12, I must have spoken to about 50. (laughs) 
<laughs> Very good. So, um, tell us a little bit about the, the thousandth member. They're up in Beverly, I believe? Yes, they are up in Beverly. Um, they're a family farm. And um, they are exactly the same as any other farmer who needs assistance and help. Um, we are there to provide solutions to the problems that they bring to us. And uh, a farmer can choose to use us or not use us. Um, but as far as we are concerned, we are there to provide informed market commentary and to buy for them as and when they want it. We will never force anyone to do anything they don't want to do. This is very much about guiding them, making sure they understand market conditions and then doing the right thing for their business when it suits them. Well, as you're talking about John Bird there, he is alongside us. Um, John, thousandth member of World Marsh. Congratulations uh, on that uh, accolade. Why have you joined them? Well, because I've been looking at World Marsh for quite a few years. Um, we first looked probably 10 years ago, um, and then it's been something that I've been thinking about doing and talked to many customers, but never actually done it. And then we were at Cereals last year, and I, and I suddenly saw the World Marsh sign, and I thought, right, I have actually got a spare half hour. I'm going to go over, and we joined. And uh, I was just saying a, 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 a typical thing that happened only two weeks ago. I started at 10% discount, and I ended up at 90% and it was due to World Marsh. So it's already proving beneficial here? Very beneficial. Well, that's good to hear. Stuart, back back to you. I imagine having a 1,000 members, quite a diverse group within that 1,000. A very diverse group. Uh, Our smallest member farms probably no more than about eight acres, and the largest farms about 14,000 acres. So, and everything in between. Um, There is no such thing as an average member. It just doesn't exist. And and it's all about sharing that experience, that expertise. Very much. Uh, We are there to give them the information that they are seeking to get uh, and, to be quite honest, anything that they want to know. Even if we don't know it, we will go away and find out and we'll we'll feed it back to them. But it's it's help from everything, from helping them with paperwork, keeping their accounts simple, one monthly payment, all the way through to giving them sort of complicated and... um, information about the market so you know are India tendering for fertilizer which means there's a spike in the market and maybe now's not a good time to buy in the UK uh, everything they could think of and is it is it becoming even more useful as, you know because with technology developing you think oh they could probably go online and find a lot of this information out but actually more and more people are being attracted to to ideas such as yours. they are and I think the, the simple fact of the matter is that farming has lost a lot of its people so, you know, a thousand-acre farm, an arable farm in this part of the world, is typically a one-man operation. Uh, consequently, there are only so many things you can do. And actually, if you're going to do things well, having somebody who actually takes part of that off you and provides you with the, the one bit of information you need in order to make a decision is why we are successful. And what are they saying about the industry at the moment to you? I think uh, they recognise the fact that there are many challenges. Um, I think being farmers, they remain largely optimistic, but I think we all have to be mindful of the fact that there are challenges coming our way and um, we have to be innovative and forward thinking and not necessarily do what we've always done. That's Stuart McKenzie, he's Chief Executive of Wald Marsh and in the middle we heard from John Bird who's from East Yorkshire and is officially the thousandth member of the Farmers Buying Group, sharing some farming positivity with us this week. The Farming Programme.
five-day forecast. Can I share positivity weather-wise? Well, a bit more settled, certainly at the start of the week, but low pressure will dominate and that means stronger winds and more bands of rain likely come the latter end of the week, I'm afraid. Today, dry. Could be frosty, though. Highs around six, and if there are any showers, they could well be uh, wintry in nature as well. The winds today from the southwest, and they might gust 25 to 30 miles an hour for a time. Tomorrow and Tuesday, again dry but chilly, barely any wind really, highs of 5, overnight lows just above freezing. Then Wednesday onwards, it looks more unsettled, but with winds from the south, that does mean uh, that uh, milder air will push in. We'll see. We'll keep a check with the hourly forecast as ever. For now though, that is the forecast. Next week, it's hard to believe, it's our last programme proper of the year, before the panto the week after, and uh, we're looking again at the weather and the impact on winter drilling, with some advice financially, um, which hopefully you should find useful as we do head towards a brand new year. Until next week, take care.